0: Hello and welcome to Writer's Book Club, the podcast where we take a deep dive with an author into the writing craft and process behind one of their books. I'm Michelle Barraclough, and this month I have an absolute masterclass for you. Mark Smith is the author of an incredibly successful trilogy of novels called The Winter Series, the first of which, The Road to Winter, we're going to dive into today. Whether or not you write for young adults, you're gonna learn so much on the craft of novel writing from this interview. Mark has so much great advice on everything from pacing and dialogue and editing and setting, and he also presents a compelling argument for the early introduction of backstory in a novel, which, as you know, from listening to this podcast is one of the things that I have always struggled with but Mark gave me some great tips and a lot of hope. Mark has a few really smart mantras he lives by when it comes to writing too. This is definitely an episode where you want to take notes so pull out one of those fancy notebooks you've been hoarding and put it to work during this episode. Let me tell you about The Road to Winter since a deadly virus and the violence that followed wiped out his parents and most of his community finn has lived alone on the rugged coast with only his loyal dog rowdy for company he stayed alive for two winters hunting and fishing and trading food and keeping out of sight of the wilders an armed and dangerous gang that controls the north led by a ruthless man named ramage but finn's isolation is shattered when a girl runs onto the beach rose is a siley an asylum seeker, and she's escaped from Ramage, who has enslaved her and her younger sister, Kaz. Rose is desperate, sick, and she needs Finn's help. Kaz is still missing somewhere out in the bush, and Ramage wants the girls back at any cost. I inhaled these novels. I just loved them. In fact, I finished the first one and then immediately picked up the second and kept reading because I just needed to know what happened to all these wonderful characters that Marx created. The Road to Winter is so good, it's studied in high schools all over Australia. It's been called tense and atmospheric and fast-moving and enthralling. It's been called beautiful and intimate, and it's been called a thrilling read with fantastic characters, and I would agree with all of that and more. But it's also a really fantastic novel to study as a writer, as you'll hear in this interview with Mark. Let me tell you a bit about Mark Smith. He's the author of four young adult novels, including his critically acclaimed Winter Trilogy. The Road to Winter was shortlisted for multiple awards and is taught in schools around Australia. The sequel, Wilder Country, won the 2018 Australian Indie Book Award for YA. An award-winning writer of short fiction, Mark's work has appeared in Best Australian Stories, Review of Australian Fiction, The Big Issue, The Victorian Writer, Ireland and The Australian. Mark is also an in-demand speaker at schools and an experienced facilitator at festivals and book launches. I hope you enjoy this deep dive with Mark into his breakout novel, The Road to Winter. Hello, Mark. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks, Michelle. Thanks for having me.
0: It's my absolute pleasure. I can't believe I hadn't read your book until a month or two ago, how it wasn't on my radar. But I think I said to you when we were working together on your website, I had your book on my desk and my 18 year old son came past and said, that's the best book ever. And I was like, what? He goes, yeah, yeah. I read, read it at school. What's it like being on the school syllabus?
1: It's awesome apart from anything else it's a foot in the door to you know so many schools but but i've come across so many kids like your son who and i know from having grown up as a non-reader myself that sometimes it is just a matter of finding that one book the one yeah. book that's going to set you off on the journey and uh and to hear that that's the road to winter for some kids that's just that's just like what what could be better than that you know yeah so I absolutely love it.
0: And then I just, as I told you, I literally inhaled all three books. Yeah. So not just for young adults or school kids.
1: Yeah, they've actually, in terms of sales, they've crossed over really well into adult market as well.
0: Have they? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, okay.
1: yeah. I mean, I mean, the, the sales in young adult market are generally an older age group than what you think anyway. You know, they're sort of 18 to 21s. It's that funny sort of genre where... The, the people who buy your books are not necessarily your readers because it's teachers, parents, and librarians who are buying the books and then passing them on to your readers. So, in a way, it's getting past them, you know, yeah. with, your, with your book to, to get it onto the shelves and to get it into the hands of kids. But uh, it's uh, you have you actually have no idea of how many schools have the book on curriculum because there's no, no one keeps figures or you can't track it. Oh, but,
0: really? Oh, that's, that's yeah, interesting. No. Okay.
1: Uh, Until a school contacts you and says, oh, hey, we've been studying the road to winter for three years now. And we'd like to think, oh, great, fantastic.
0: Can you please rock up and do a school visit?
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Oh, that's so interesting. And I guess once a child has read uh, The Road to Winter, I would say that they'd be asking their parents for the other two. You know, so birthday present, Christmas present.
1: Yeah, it tends to go that way. I mean, no school will put a trilogy on curriculum, but they'll put the first book on Mm -hmm. and then they'll have the other books, the other two in the library. And then the next one comes out, they'll have that in the library. So you establish a readership in that way. And I also think that those kids that read The Road to Winter when it came out in two thousand and sixteen, they're now in their twenties. Yeah. So hopefully, you know, the next book I'm writing is an adult book, and hopefully that at least my name will be recognizable to them as a as an adult reader, as it was as a young adult reader.
0: Yeah, of course. So tell us what yeah. inspired you to write The Road to Winter in the first place?
1: I, I was thinking about this question. I don't think any book comes from a single source. It mm. comes from multiple points of inspiration. And there were for uh, for The Road to Winter. To start with, I was for a long period of time I was an English teacher and you know, there's an old saying, every English teacher reckons they've got a novel in them and I probably believe that. But it was also when I was uh, when I initially was teaching English, I actually ended up retraining as an outdoor read teacher. So I haven't taught English for a long time, but When I was teaching English, I found it was a real rarity to have books that could engage kids of that age that were, number one, were page-turners, so they would get through to the... they want to get through to the the end of it, but also books that dealt with issues and themes that were of interest to those readers, to those kids. And, of course, there are many, many of those books now that are out there. The young adult market has just exploded with, with books like that. But at the time that I first conceived The Road to Winter there was a rarity of those sorts of books I also then the last sort of 18 years of my teaching life I was head of a residential campus for 15 year old boys down here on the coast so many of whom were not readers and it kind of that sparked that that sparked the old English teacher in me that was saying well hang on why aren't you reading what is it that's missing from the books that are there available to you because they're only reading what they were being forced to read for what was on curriculum so but the other thing of course was that that job meant that I was working 24 hours a day with these with these boys it means I could observe them watch the way they communicate all of their mannerisms the, the way they think or they don't think at times so that was another major influence on me working with those boys and having that insight into the sort of lives that they led and also by, this is about 2014, 15, when I wrote the novel, I'd been writing short stories for a number of years and I'd had a bit of success. And I guess I, you reach a stage where you want to challenge yourself more as a writer. So so that was the next sort of step in in why, you know, The Road to Winter came into being. And when I, when I decided that, okay, I'm going to put short stories aside to write a novel for a while, I gave myself 12 months. And... So, what I did was, I went back through my short stories because you've got to have, if you're going to write a novel, you've got to have a story to sort of work from. I went back through my short stories and I thought, which one of these do I think I could create into a longer narrative, into a bigger narrative? And I had this one short story which had never been published, no one ever liked it. It was called Breathing In and Out. And it was about this boy who was living in a small coastal town after a pandemic had wiped out most of the population. And the title Breathing In and Out, which I still really love as a title, just referred to him going to sleep at night and being soothed by the breathing of his dog Rowdy next to him on the bed. And so I guess all of those, the stars sort of aligned between my teaching experience and my writing life. And I had the voice of those 15-year-old boys firmly entrenched in my head. So then the next stage was I asked myself, well, what do I know and what do I care about the most? Because to sustain a 60,000-word novel, you've got to have that level of engagement. So my answers to that were pretty clear. They were the coast, uh, teenagers, the environment, surfing, climate change, it's asylum seekers. And so the road to winter came out of out of my own experience, but out of my passions as well and the, out of the places that I, I, I cared for the most. And, of course, there was the prescience of writing about a global pandemic five years before... It's called Coronavirus.
0: If there's a rarity of those types of books that you were talking about for teenage boys, there definitely was a rarity of pandemics at the time, Mark. Yeah. How bloody prescient were yeah. you?
1: And ultimately, it was just a plotting device, nothing more, because all, I, I needed these kids to be on their own for some reason. And so I did some research into the uh, to the Spanish flu pandemic, global pandemic at the end of the First World War. And then I brought that into a 21st century context. I thought, well, what would happen if we had that? So, hence, in the first chapter of The Road to Winter, we have people wearing masks, we have panic buying at the supermarkets, uh, we have quarantine towns, we have lockdowns, all of those things happening. But that just, to me, appeared to be logical that this is what would happen. So, it was, you know, it turned out to be prescient. And, Fortunately, the pandemic that we've lived through wasn't to the extent of the one described in the book.
0: Yeah, yeah. You sort of went from naught to a hundred. But yeah. it was pretty scary reading it, having <laughs> just come out of two years of pandemic. Yeah. What what did you think when the whole pandemic came about and we were doing lockdowns? Did you think, oh my God, this is going I, to be I did.
1: Yeah. I did think, oh my God, you know, what's happening here? But it's interesting that uh, because by that stage the book was already on curriculum that, at a lot of schools, and there was a there was a bit of an uptake in more schools taking it on because of that factor, but there was also a number of schools had dropped it off because they thought it was too triggering, it was too close to home. And I remember pitching this novel to film producers at uh, the Gold Coast Film Festival as part of the adaptable program that Queensland Writers' Centre uh, runs, and... It was interesting, the response of the producers, because they were saying, I thought, well, I'm on a winner here. You know, look, a pandemic, and we're in the, we're right in the middle of COVID at that stage. they were actually saying, no, look, it's probably a disadvantage, because there's going to be so many books about a pandemic and about being in lockdown and things like that, that that it, it wasn't necessarily the advantage that I thought it was going to be.
0: But maybe that time is coming now that we're out of it.
1: Yeah. And look, I'm sure they're I'm sure there are a lot of writers like myself who are currently writing a book and are thinking okay do i put this into the pandemic is this are people wearing masks are we in lockdown or do you do as i've done actually set it five years earlier so deliberately setting it pre-pandemic so you don't have to deal with all of those you know all of those factors that can that can i suppose can aid a narrative but they can also get in the way of a narrative too
0: Yeah, yeah. And then there are some other books that have just come out that just reference the pandemic as being in the past. Like, I think Leanne Moriarty's latest book kind of referenced it. Tony Jordan's last book referenced it, you know.
1: Um, Gary Dishes as well referenced that It was just sort of starting. There's a reference to something happening in China, you know, towards the end of the book.
0: But if they're going to make you know, a TV series or a movie about a pandemic and a whole bunch of kids surviving it, then you're the OG, Mark. I think they have to go to the source, right? That's such a great origin story. I love hearing about the inspiration for, for the story. So what came first for you, the characters or the plot?
1: I think I'm a little bit of an outlier here because for me, with my writing, it's actually the setting that comes first. And I believe that if I can find the setting, I'll find the character in that setting. So... A lot of work then obviously goes into developing that character and that does happen on the page for me. Yeah. I don't have a character arc in mind. I really just write from one scene to the next. But, but as an example of the way in which, you know, beginning with setting, the most recent novel I had out is called If Not Us and the very first scene is a boy on a bike riding down a hill with his surfboard in a rack on the side of the bike. So in my head, I had that kid flying down a hill on his bike with his surfboard wedged in the rack, and he came to me almost fully formed. Once I had that image of him in that place and what he was doing, I knew that kid. So because I'd been that kid myself, I'd seen so many kids like him in the town that I live in. Um, I'd seen my sons at that age. And so he was almost fully formed, and, and he came to me fully formed because of where I pictured him first that kid taking off down the hill. So, you know, I knew how he felt in that situation. I knew where he would be going. I knew what he would be doing next. And that all came for me from imagining him in that setting. And it was a very similar process with Finn in The Road to Winter. He was living very much in his own head, just surviving, desperately lonely, finding solace in his only companion in Rowdy. He didn't come to me fully formed, but it was very much imagining him in that situation and that setting that allowed me to see the character and to find his voice
0: yeah so as he starts reacting to the various situations that you've put him in that sort of helps develop his character
1: yeah that's right
0: and and including his it's not a stutter it's sort of like a where did Um, that come from
1: that came from again it was another plot device because we're going to talk about backstory a little bit a little bit later but and backstory is such a misunderstood thing, I think, and I think it's critical to good writing. But if, if you... I needed a reason. If you remember at the beginning of The Road to Winter, we have a, a big backstory, you know, in about the third chapter of Rose. We get Rose's story. And I needed a reason for Finn then not to tell her his story as he naturally would. And so I needed there to be some reason... Why he would be reluctant to do that, and hence I gave him the sort of speech impediment now it 's not a stutter, but it 's more like a grab he has a very gravelly wow. yeah. sort of growly voice, uh, and that 's why she nicknamed him dog boy you know uh, in in a loving way, uh, but I needed that device at that point so that I could get on with the story yeah. and also by that stage, the reader already knew a lot of his backstory anyway, so i didn't need to reiterate it there but there needed to be some reason for for rose not to be too curious about his backstory so you know and it becomes then a. It, then, then i've kind of backed myself into a corner it's one of the problems of pantsing because i wrote that in and i thought yeah this works really well but then you've got to sustain that over three books and i didn't <laughs> i didn't think that through as well as i should so i had to actually over the three books i had to have his voice changing and improving. But yeah. I also had to remember that every time he met a new character, they would look at him a little bit oddly because of the way he was speaking, you know, even two, three years later, th- right through to Land of Fences.
0: Yeah. And I guess because he has been, at the start of The Road to Winter, he's been on his own for two mm-hmm. years. So his voice is disused in some way. That's and right. I guess yeah. it's logical that as he becomes more involved with people and starts to use his voice more. Yeah. Oh, and there's metaphor in that.
1: Hmm. Yeah. And I mean, the fact that he'd only had Rowdy as his yes. companion as well, I think that kind of, that bled into that sort of characterisation of, of him too. Yeah.
0: And they almost have a, a relationship where they talk through their body language, yeah. don't they? Yeah. They know each other so well.
1: Yeah. You've got I love do. a dog in a book. Yeah. Oh, look, when we put characters into a book, there should be no character there that doesn't have a role, you know? And I've often been asked, well, what's Rowdy's What's Rowdy's role? And oh,
0: my gosh, he's got such a role.
1: Such a role, I know. Yes. And it, it is that companionship. Like, we think about that boy surviving entirely on his own and we think about his physical needs, but what about his mental needs as well? And it's one of, the, one of the reasons for Rowdy being there is that, you know, he helps maintain that mental health of this boy, 16-year-old boy, who's been on his own for two years, virtually no other human contact, and... He has that companionship that he gives him, you know. Hence, I, I still I still wish the book had been called Breathing In and Out. Because yeah, it's a great title. With, with him on the bed, I thought was just, yeah, that's just perfect. But we can talk about the title a little bit yeah. later because it wasn't my title. It was the publisher's title.
0: Yeah, and now it's taken on a life of its own. <laughs> yeah, that's
1: right. It, it probably couldn't be anything else.
0: No, it couldn't. So you talked about... Being a pantser, do you fall fully at the pantsing end of the spectrum or do you do a bit of plotting as you get started? How does that work?
1: No, I am a, I am a complete pantser.
0: Are you? That's so surprising because it's such a tight narrative.
1: Yeah, I've never actually planned out a novel. I keep, I, I ke- I've got a big whiteboard here next to me on the, in my office and I keep track of where I am but that's in retrospect that's after i've written a particular chapter i'll fill that chapter into the box on the whiteboard so i'm keeping track in that way especially for over a over a whole trilogy just for consistency as much as anything else but what what i continually ask myself is when i'm when i'm writing this you know part of it i think part of the enables me to pants is i just I just work scene to scene and and I always ask myself the question, what would logically happen next? And that is where the narrative will go. Because if you think about it, the novel is essentially a progression of scenes, one leading to the next, next to the next, next to the next, with just little short periods of reflection, a little bit of exposition in between. But basically it's moving scene to scene. So if you keep asking yourself that question, what would logically happen next, that's the way. I'm, I find I'm able to move through the narrative. And I also think that, that and I, you know, I, I listen to a lot of writing podcasts, I have learn from other writers as much as I can, but, but for, for, I think there's a lot of things that you can overthink in the writing process. I think, I think it's a very easy process to complicate if you want to complicate it. But for me, it's relatively simple, it's a pretty simple process. And it's keeping it simple. You know, my, my, the KISS principle guides me as a writer. Just keep it simple, stupid, and don't overthink it. And if you, if you work in that way, I think it, you are able to pants. And like I said, I'm, you know, I've written, I've got another one now, so five novels without ever having planned one. of them. I think I can go back to my writing journal and maybe there are two pages there in that journal, which was The Road to Winter. That was my planning for the road to winter two pages just a few uh, guys a few characters here's some scenes and uh, to be honest I find it I find planning boring and I wanted the excitement for me of writing is in that is in that pantsing is in that what's going to happen next where is this going to go and what can I do and sometimes you do through pantsing you do write yourself into a corner and you do have to backtrack but mostly uh you can Keep your finger on the pulse of pacing in particular. Pacing is critical to the process.
0: Yeah. What's on your whiteboard at the moment, Mark?
1: <laughs> uh, well, I had my entire new novel. I-, I wish I could just publish it like that. Yeah, <laughs> that'd be good. Um, but uh, that- that's about it, you know. But again, like I said, that's just keeping track of where I am and just the page numbers where chapters start and things like that. Now, I'm sure that Scrivener would do that much more effectively, but... <laughs> Um, but I do it on a whiteboard.
0: Yeah, well, it's you, you can just see the whole thing right there. It's yeah. fabulous.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And you can shuffle that around. You can move those move those scenes around as I have. There's a really good example I can use from that current novel.
0: Oh, good. Okay. And you don't mind doing that?
1: No, no. No, I'm, I'm out there.
0: Oh, fantastic. Well, why don't we talk about that now?
1: Okay. Yeah, so the, the premise of this new novel is that it is an adult novel and it is, the premise is that on a school outdoor education trip, three boys run ahead of their bushwalking group and they dare each other to jump into the sea, into a wild sea. All three of them are swept away and drowned. This is not giving anything away because this happens in the first chapter. And a young female outdoor ed teacher gets to the scene when she can still see the boys in the water and she makes the decision not to attempt to rescue them because she knows that she will drown she's a trained lifesaver and the first rule of rescue is don't create another casualty so that all happens pretty much at the beginning of the story and then it's all the ramifications of that for her as the story is is, is told and we've but it's got an interesting what i think is an interesting structure and that is that we have one Protagonist all the way through, who is Grace, the young female outdoor ed teacher. But every fourth or fifth chapter, there's an alternate point of view. So there's an alternate point of view from the principal, from one of the other teachers, from one of the students, and they're dotted through the through the narrative. And each one of those adds a little bit more and gives us gives us a gives us a different perspective, but also but also progresses the narrative. So I was writing this in a linear way. So I was beginning with beginning the story with the night before the accident where the boys, they're all camping out together. We're introduced to the characters. We get a little bit of backstory. And then the next day is when the accident happens and there's the description of the, the day of the accident. And then chapter three was the aftermath of the accident. And it wasn't until chapter five that, there was the phone call to the principal it's the first introduction of another character of the different point of view so it was chapter five and it's the phone call from one of the teachers on the beach telling him this what's going to change his entire life his career because one of the boys is also the principal's nephew oh. so there's all of that happening and the whole start of the novel didn't work for me it wasn't it wasn't you know the beginning of the novel has got to be like uh, like a hand reaching out of the page and just pulling you in. And if it doesn't do that, or if you have to wait for chapter five for that to happen, it's too late. You, you know, chances are you've lost your reader by then. So I decided that as the f- uh, to introduce a prologue, and the prologue is begins with the phone call. It, the whole story begins with the phone call to the principal. Okay. So we get the names of the boys who have died, and you know, that. He's sitting in his car in the pouring rain taking this call at, you know, at 6 o'clock on a Tuesday evening, you know, on the side of the road in, in, in Melbourne. So automatically then we're dumping, I realise I need to dump my reader straight into the core of the drama here. So we get that phone call, but then the second and third, second chapter is we go back to the night before the incident okay. and here are the boys And it changed the whole dynamic because now the reader knows that these boys, here's Ah. the one, two, here here are the three who are going to drown, Mm. but they're still alive. Um, And this is what they say and this is how they behave and they're normal, average, everyday 15-year-old kids, 16-year-old kids, you know. Um, But in the reader's mind, they're thinking, oh, my God, you know, this is, that's Harry, you know, and what does Harry say? because they know that Harry's going to be dead the next day. So it, it, in terms of the way you can use a you know, a, a whiteboard like I'm using now or Scriven or however you do it, you have the opportunity to to move entire scenes around, move entire chapters to create a different dynamic for your book. And particularly at the start, that's that's hugely influential in whether you're going to grab your reader or not.
0: Yeah. Why did you start with the phone call and not Grace on the beach doing the rescue because that would be dumping them straight into the action as well, right?
1: Yeah, one of the, one of the problems there was that there was no there would have been no context. Right. For this teacher being on the beach and hang on what, what why are they there? Rishi. Who are these boys and yeah. where are they and they they needed the context. And when we talk about backstory, that's what backstory does. It gives the context and the scaffolding for the plot, and for the way in which your characters are going to behave. So if you don't have that, it's, it's too obtuse for the reader to un- wonder, what, what the hell's going on? And I think it's okay for a reader to be wondering, but not to be completely lost. And I also l- really seized on that idea of the way in which the reader would respond differently when they knew that this was the boy that was going to drown, and this boy, and this boy. And it, it creates, a, you know, the, the the novel from a couple of readers, a few readers that have had a look at it have basically said there's not enough empathy for the boys. And so I needed to change that so that, you know, the, the readers' hearts should be just broken by seeing these boys alive and being normal and, yeah. you know, and mucking around and taking the piss out of things and and knowing that the next day that boy was going to be gone.
0: Yeah, just Beautiful piece of foreshadowing there. And yeah. yeah, in that second chapter, you're making the reader care about those characters. Yes, yeah, that's yeah. right.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Oh my God, my heart's racing just thinking <laughs> about that scenario.
1: Yeah.
0: Oh, that's great, Mark. Thank you for sharing that with us. That's okay. Yeah. So, just talking about backstory, in the first chapter of The Road to Winter, you bring us up to speed with Finn's current situation and the events that led to it really succinctly, really powerfully in the first. 14 pages. Now, we've heard all the advice about not introducing backstory for the first 50 pages, rah, 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 how yeah. it can slow the pace. I love backstory, so I'm always getting in trouble for this. But you've pulled it off so beautifully. That first chapter just rockets along, and by chapter mm. two, the reader is fully invested in Finn and his future and knows everything that's, you know, yeah. already gone on. Yeah. Can you talk us through that first chapter and how you decided to incorporate it?
1: Yeah. It's a it's a really good example of the way good editing works because first of all, thank you for acknowledging the importance of backstory. It is just critical to to everything in a in a novel, even in a, or in a short story. And I I I teach a lot of writing classes, and I concentrate. I begin with backstory. You know, I don't ascribe to that point of view that that no backstory for the first fifty pages. Because, as I mentioned, backstory provides the scaffolding for the reader to understand the actions of your characters. So if you don't have that scaffolding in there for those first 50 pages, I'm not sure how you generate empathy for your character or an understanding of why they're behaving in the way that they are. So, but I think the key to backstory is to get the information across to the readers without them realising that they're getting it. That's the thing. It's got to be... It's got to be so subtly done. And I know that you can, you can, you can certainly have a slow reveal of backstory through, through a narrative, but very close to the start, there has to be enough information for your readers to understand why your characters are acting in the way that they are. It's yeah. as simple as that. And in terms of the road to winter, if you look at the key elements of backstory in Chapter 1, they are all actually presented as action, not as exposition.
0: Yes, right. Okay. It, That's the secret, I think, isn't it? The secret yeah, sauce. Um, yeah. So
1: we have the scene at the supermarket where Finn's dad dies. It's presented as action. And yet it's backstory because it's filling us in on what's happened to Finn, what's happened to his dad. His mum's disappearance is presented as action. This is what was happening to him on that day. The meeting with Ray is presented as action. So by the time we get to the end of that first chapter, we know why Finn is in the situation that he, that he is. We know he lost his mum, he's lost his dad. We know about Rowdy. We know about, we know about Ray. And then, bang, we're off and into the story. And if you look at that chapter as well, it constantly chops and changes from present to past to present to past. And in that process, we, we learn just enough to understand why Finn reacts in the way that he does when Rose arrives on the beach. Which is, you know, which is the inciting incident for everything that follows We already have this character of Finn formed in our heads Which is, is this resilient, wary, shy, desperately lonely kid And that explains why he reacts to Rose in the way that he does Now that chapter as I wrote it in the original draft Was very different from the way that it appears in the book and this is where the editing process came in because at that stage, Rebecca Stafford was my, the first editor that I worked with oh. and she was basically saying exactly what you'd expect. There's too much exposition here. You don't, you know, you, you're sort of overloading it with backstory, you're, informa- you're info dumping. So why don't, we, why don't we move back and forward a little bit? Why don't we, why don't we have this day in Finn's life? Where we're introduced to him, and he goes for surf and the storms, and and we introduce Rowdy, but in between we have these little throwbacks, and the little throwbacks are to the three scenes that we've, you know, that I've mentioned with his dad, his mum, and with Ray, and and that it's not, it's it's taking away the info dump, but it's still informing the reader enough to know why this is happening in the way that it is, and to do that subtly. And to do it without the reader realizing that's the art, that's the, that's the hard thing to do. And I absolutely, you know, the, I, I can guarantee that every book that I put into my, to my publisher, it'll be one of the first things that my editor will say will be, you know, you've overloaded with backstory, you've overloaded with backstory, cut it back, cut it back. And really, you don't need a lot. You just need to present the essence of the character. What are the two or three little things that are enough to inform the reader about them and why they're going to respond in the way that they do? It doesn't have to be a lot. And, and you know, and then because the character develops as, it go, as you go through the you narrative, know, you can add more and more as you go through, but you just have to be very, very careful about how much of that information you give at the beginning. And there's so many things that you're trying to do at that <laughs> in that, you know, that at the beginning of the story. You're trying to establish a character with backstory you're trying to establish setting you are establishing the voice of the character you're making the genre clear and then bang you've got to get on with the action so there's it's such a it's why i think writers will often tell you what's what's the ch- chapter that you write and rewrite the most it's chapter one because <laughs> that's where you are established establishing yourself in the mind of the reader and it, you only get one chance at it if you blow it You know, they're not going to stick with you.
0: Yeah. I'm just going to urge the listeners now to jump onto your website, MarkSmithWriter.com, because you have an extract of the first chapter of The Road to Winter on there. And I think rather than us reading out examples and giving people examples, they would just need to read that first chapter. It is an absolute masterclass in the transition to backstory, into it and out of it how the backstory works in terms of action, dialogue, there's tension in each of those little segments as well. And I love the way you've gone backwards and forwards with those little vignettes, you know, they're short, sharp, little sections that just take you into the setting, into the void. Like, it does everything. That chapter achieves everything, I think, that a first chapter needs to and achieve. And there should and be a- an
1: asterisk to, attached to that chapter that acknowledges Rebecca Stafford for <laughs> the awesome work that she did on, on, on giving me that idea and bringing that, that chapter to fruition.
0: So, now that we're talking about editing, You've talked a little bit about how Rebecca helped you. What else did Rebecca help you with throughout? Like what role did editing play and how did Rebecca help you with the rest of the novel?
1: Yeah, I actually had two editors on this book because Rebecca, about two thirds of the way through the editing of this book, Rebecca left text and Jane Pearson took over as my editor. Both of them just, I'm just in awe of the job that that editors do, you know. I, I always joke that, at some stage, you know the the industry is going to get onto us writers, and it's going to be you know this could have been this could have been entitled "The Road to Winter" by Jane Pearson, you know, <laughs> loosely based on the original idea by Mark Smith, because they, you know it is so critical that that relationship between the writer and the editor. To begin with, you know before text even saw this novel, my first draft of the Road to Winter was ninety thousand words, and it was a very different darker, more explicit novel than the one that was eventually published at 60,000 words. And I think by the time I submitted, which went to the Slush Pilot text, I'd refined it down to about 75,000 words, which is still way too long for a young adult novel. And that process involved allowing a few other people to read it. I had a bookstore owner, my local bookstore owner, a fellow writer, an English teacher friend, and two teenagers read it and gave me feedback. And of course i choose what i you know choose to take on in terms of that feedback and what i what i don't but but once text offered me a contract for this novel then the professional editing began and firstly with rebecca as i said and then with jane and this is where it becomes this is where it becomes about that relationship between the writer and the editor because the editor is basically Trying to have a foot in both camps and one is to be on your side as the writer but the other is to be on the publisher's side who with an eye to the market so and they're trying to figure where's this book going to fit w- where is this book going to fit into the market and i think that Text had a very and they were right they had a very good idea of where this was going to fit and the manuscript that i had given them wasn't quite right to fit into that slot, and so what the what the editor does then is they they mould your book to fit that market, as as best they can while still retaining you know you're re- retaining the integrity of your work. But I think also o- often as a as a first time the first time you're picked up by a publisher, you know you're going to publish me, great yeah no do you know do what you like with it. But I think you you know one of the things that you learn as a writer is that. Uh, as you have more books published is that uh, you tend to hang on to a bit more, you tend to stand up for yourself a little bit more. Not that I've I've never had any conflicts with the two magnificent editors that I've worked with. They've been, you know, they, they put their heart and soul into this novel of yours. But there's a lot of compromise that's in, involved in that relationship from both sides and that's, you know, Letting go of stuff, you know, the old mantra of being prepared to kill your darlings. And so there were scenes that were deleted from the original manuscript of The Road to Winter that were considered too explicit or triggering for a a YA audience. Um,
0: Really? God, because it is already quite, you know, there are some heavy scenes in it.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, and I think that's the thing is that there's still evidence of them in there. It's just that they, they are now inferred rather than explicitly stated. Right. And I think that's, that's the key to it, S- especially what has happened to Rose and Kaz when they're held captive by Ramage at the feed store. I think okay. we, and kids as well, have a pretty good understanding of what happened there, but I don't have to spell it out for them. So, you know, in, in terms of that, that writer's relationship with the editor, I'm not sure, I'm not sure whether... I'm All editors work in the same way. But Jane, who's edited the the three books consequent to that followed The Road to Winter as well, she takes every new draft as a clean manuscript, which means that she's accepting what you as the writer have taken on board from her previous edits, such as the structural edit and then approach it as an entirely new manuscript. So not going back, in other words, and thinking, oh, what did you do there that i taught you know? Yes. So that's, Cliver. in that way, you maintain your integrity of, of the. Of you. You're the creator. You're the writer. And so she's not necessarily going back and looking at, oh, what did you ignore or what didn't you accept? And that's the same for the, for the structural edit, the copy edit, the line edit, all the way through. So usually she doesn't go back and check up on what you've taken on board and, and, and not, unless it's something she's particularly concerned about. Um, <laughs> well, I
0: guess if it comes up for her again in the next yeah, read, then it's something right. yeah. to be concerned about. if it's about. still
1: there for her in the next read, then she's yeah. probably on to something. Yeah. She's probably right. Um, that
0: shows a lot of trust in you as well, I, I think, which is part of that, creating that relationship. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But I'm also conscious that, you know, there are a lot of writers out there who haven't been published yet and who don't have the benefit of a professional editor. And I can, you know, that example that I gave of the of the book that I'm writing at the moment, isn't mm-hmm. it? That's, that's just something where I'm editing for myself and it's really I'm structurally editing that part of the story. So it's... Again, I, I feel as I'm a more experienced writer now writing book number five mm. and more confident in doing that rather than handing that over to somebody else and provide you know provided you're, you're, you're submitting a, a, a really clean manuscript a, a manuscript in good condition, then I think you'll be meeting your publisher's expectations.
0: Do you feel like you've got Jane's voice in your head a little bit now when oh, you're yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I can I can almost predict. At times, that the you know the story doesn't start till chapter three, and like I said, two-based exposition or backstory. And uh, the the thing that the thing that a good editor does is a good editor highlights your blind spots. Okay. And so, and I've had blind spots in all of the manuscripts that I've submitted, and Jane is very good at pointing those blind spots out. And you know she. She does a fantastic job of, of you know, schooling me in, in feminist critique, you know, about my female characters in particular, which is what I need because I'm a middle-aged white man and I'm writing, you know, I'm, I'm including female characters and really strong female characters in my book, but naturally I'm going to miss things. There are going to be blind spots that, and, uh, and that will happen with my new book as well. The, the, the key protagonist is a, is a 25-year-old female outdoor editor so i've got the outdoor ed background but i'm not female and i'm going to need those blind spots pointed out to me and it's one of the reasons why one of my one of my readers for this was was a young female outdoor editor so
0: oh good oh that's
1: great so you
0: must be getting some terrific insights from her
1: lots yeah lots and lots of things where i've actually witnessed things we've been in she worked for me and with me for a number of years and I have memories of those particular incidents, but she viewed them in a totally different way.
0: So, well, talking about character, you do the most wonderful job of creating these characters. Yeah. The characters are so strongly drawn, Mark, but I'm really interested because I think writers, aspiring writers in particular, struggle with creating likeable or relatable. Characters don't have to be likeable, but I think they do have to be relatable and they have to yeah. have likeable characteristics, don't they? So. What are some of the techniques that you use to create these beautiful characters of finn and rose and cass and roy without making them seem sort of sappy or weak or two-dimensional
1: yeah it's a very it's a very difficult because it comes it comes down to that the hate using all over the kind of organic process of of what's happening in the creation of those characters but you're right there's a very fine balance between creating empathy for your characters or at least getting the the reader on side with the characters and making them too sappy or weak. And I think as much as as characters need to be relatable and likeable, they also need to be authentic. They need to be realistic. So the key to creating Finn was, was finding his voice early on. I can't remember whether, uh, I think it might have been a Garrett podcast where my publisher, Michael Haywood, was asked the question what do you look for in a manuscript, you know, off the slush pile or someone new? What do you look for? What's the thing? And he, without hesitation, he said, it's voice. It's the voice. And so there was something about the voice of Finn, which I was able to hook into early on. And... You know, a lot of that was around... You know, I'm sitting in my writing studio, studio at the moment, so when I was writing that book, in fact, the trilogy, I had to leave adult Mark at the door and I had to come and sit down as 16-year-old Finn using the language and the thought processes of a 16-year-old and and that to try to make him as realistic as possible. So, you know, my mantra when I was writing Finn was that if he was going to be realistic believable 16 year old boy my mantra was he had to be consistently inconsistent because that's what 16 year olds are like they make some good decisions but they make some rubbish decisions as well Uh, and i hope young readers actually see themselves and i think they do in finn or in kaz or in rose and uh that they you know that they they believe if if they don't believe the character they're not going to go on the journey with you so and that, again, you know, we talked about the, the heavy lifting that, that first, those first couple of chapters have to do is that not only do you have to create a setting and, uh, uh, you know, do that world building that kids are going to believe, the characters within that world have to be believable as well. And, you know, in terms of how, the, how you do that, how you structure that, I don't think, you know, and it's balancing the dark with the light, because it cannot be relentlessly dark. So I don't think you can underestimate the use of humour in making those characters realistic and relatable. And kids are no different from adults in that they will somehow find humour in the darkest places. And, and of course, we know that that's a coping mechanism. And so there are little, little drops of humour that's quite deliberate where even in the darkest of circumstances, Finn will find a joke or a try... Desperately to try and tell a joke to, you know, impress one making of them. Impression on Rose. Yeah, and it might fall flat, but that's 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 what would happen. That's yeah. real, you know. So, and a couple of times it comes off, and it's, he's like, "Oh God, <laughs> you know, how good am I?" And that because that's what they do. The other the other technique I use is to allow the reader to be creative in seeing the character for themselves. So it's that. It's that movie that the reader has running in their heads as they read. So I wrote an entire trilogy, 180,000 words, and I only ever provided one line of physical description of Finn. What? One line. And that's it when he walks past the mirror and he just says that, you know, his his hair's long and ropey and he's got sunburnt lips and face. That's it. That's all I give in 180,000 words. And that's quite deliberate because largely it doesn't matter readers will create their own image of him in their head as they read anyway so in that way the character becomes something of the reader's own creation if you like they have an investment this is my Finn. this is my kaz this is my rose this is my rowdy and and that i think is the key to creating that connection between the character and the reader and having the reader want to go with them. I want my readers to be watching their backs. You know, I want them to be ducking and weaving through the story with the characters because it's so intense and it's so close. So that's the, you know, that's the theory of it. Pulled it off. You did. Yeah. And it, it it takes a lot of work to get those subtleties, right? And that comes in the editing process as well. So I do tend to overwrite and then strip back, and and so stripping stripping back to what I call austere prose. Keep it just keep it simple. Tell the story. Don't embellish.
0: Yeah, and what role does dialogue play in that? Is that in, uh, an important God. part of it?
1: Yeah, Di- dialogue can both be uh, it can be a trap, and because I I don't think there's, there are many writers who don't think oh, I write really good dialogue. And it's something that I've really had to work on uh, is to write good dialogue and, and to write realistic dialogue. Because as we know, dialogue in a story is not the way we normally speak. So it's got to be, there's got to be a point to this conversation taking place now. And what is the point? Is it to illuminate more about the character, which it often is? Is it to provide a little bit of exposition for, for, for the story? And or is it to demonstrate conflict? And we, we know that, that dialogue works best where there's conflict. And so dialogue is hugely important. I think it's hugely important in every book, but particularly with young adult, because it, it traverses the story along really, really effectively and quickly. It leaves a lot of white space on the page, which I think is really important. And that keeps kids moving through. It keeps me moving through yeah. as a, I love reading dialogue, if it's well written, I am, you know, I'm picturing the characters who are, who are saying these words, but at the same time I'm getting more and more of the story and things are making more and more sense to me or a greater mystery is being created. So it's hugely important and I think it's something also that takes a lot of refinement to write good dialogue and I was blessed very early on to have some, some amazing teachers of dialogue, one being Tony Jordan. Who who is look at the way tony uses yeah, dialogue she's
0: just the um, queen
1: and i'll also as well if i'm uh you know i i will go and read if i'm struggling with a piece of dialogue uh, i will go and read someone like peter temple uh, and peter Te- look at the way peter temple used dialogue and i've heard him interviewed unfortunately you know, he's passed away but yeah. i've heard i've heard an interview of him because his dialogue is sometimes so juice and and he, you know, it's almost him saying to the reader, if you can't make sense of this, keep up. <laughs> and and I thought, you know, it's challenging the reader. And sometimes you need to do that with the dialogue as well.
0: Yeah. So you touched before on balancing the light and the dark. So I wanted mm. to ask you about that as well. You talked about pulling out a lot of the really explicit stuff. These kids, You know, they're surviving all alone in a really frightening dystopian world, their lives are completely upside down, the virus is a risk, they're always at risk of running out of food, the truly frightening gangs of men are constantly on their tail, there's so much tension going on, but there is some beautiful quieter moments which you also, as you say, need to have to, to mm. give the reader some space to breathe. So how do you achieve that balance between the scary, dark stuff and then bringing in some of the light for that young adult reader?
1: Yeah, I, again, it's a, it's a real balancing act because I think that for, for young readers in particular, keeping the narrative close is one way of them dealing with something which is beyond their control. So if you look at the way in which you know so much of you know kids I think about kids and where do they feel safest most most often they feel safest in their own room or they feel safest in their home hopefully or they feel safest when they're in a small group with their friends. So so you've got to provide that that safety for them within this dark world as well. And that say so look at how much in the road to winter look at how much happens in Finn's kitchen and why because i'm trying to keep that, that nice and close and and it it kind of allows the reader to take a breath and because uh, even though even though these books are page turners they can't be all action there's got to be that those periods when we allow our reader to draw a breath and to, and to come back to, and sometimes it's just little things like Rose and, Rose and Finn making a soup in the kitchen together, you know, and they're cutting the carrots and they're kind of nudging each other and, and having a little joke with each other. Meanwhile, outside that house, it's a dark world and it is, they're, in, they're in imminent danger. But by having those little scenes, and some of the scenes with Rowdy are the same as well, it brings it back close and it allows the reader to reconnect with that feeling of safety there there is some safety here same as when you know when finn when Finn is taken to the valley farm and he goes into Harry and Stella's house look at his reaction to going into that house because he sees it for what it is it's not a house it's a home and and it's the smell of food cooking it is lego on the floor it's all those things that that we associate with a a place of safety and familiarity so it kind of again allows the the reader to think okay he's safe for a little while he's safe for a little while and then uh, until of course the next the next thing happens and the next thing happens until uh, until unless...
0: big bad author Mark Smith comes along and yeah, turns right. the whole thing upside down for them again.
1: Yeah,
0: I love also when Finn goes out for a surf and Rose is really concerned. Don't yeah? You know, what are you doing? You're so mm. exposed out there. It's so mm. dangerous. And he said, actually, that's the safest place. No yeah. one can get me there.
1: Yeah, and that's so, that. that's being in that familiar space. Yeah, as well for him. This, the, you know, the place where uh, where he feels most in control.
0: Yeah, and with Ray too, he feels safe. Like whenever mm. they go to Ray's, like go to Ray's, go to Ray's, you'll be safe <laughs> at Ray's. Of course, they are for a little yes. while until big bad author Mark Smith comes along and does something horrible yeah. again. <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, uh, look, Ray was a Ray was a lovely character to write.
0: Gorgeous, love uh, him.
1: And you know, I, I just felt that that. And this was actually, uh, Ray was, a, was Tony Jordan's suggestion because she said, I see what you're doing here, but you need someone else. You need someone that he can bounce ideas off, someone that's a little bit older, give him that little bit of wisdom. And that's where, that's where Ray came in.
0: Yeah. So talking about then flipping away from the safety to the pace and the tension. Yeah. Is this just you sitting down and going, okay, what am I going to throw at them today that's going to create some some tension and some pace? What do you do there, Mark?
1: Yeah, well, to begin with, uh, I think that as writing these three books in first person, present tense, brings a different dynamic to that, to the pace. And it obviously has lots of advantages because it has the immediacy. And I'm, like I said, I'm wanting my, uh, readers to be dodging and weaving their way through the story with the characters and watching their backs, and and I think that is that's developed and through the immediacy of first person present tense, and it's kind of a way of lessening the distance between the characters and the plot, if that makes sense, because it's all happening now, right here in front of them, and instead of it being told in hindsight by someone who's obviously still alive and recounting the story, then this is happening right now, and we don't know what's going to happen next. So there are obvious disadvantages with that as well. And that is that is that it's like writing with blinkers on, because it's only what Finn sees, feels, hears, and understands in that moment. And if you if you drop out of that, it's 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 not genuine. You know, like he doesn't know what's happening behind him, let alone a kilometer that way, or where the wires might be, or and and that's one of the ways that in these books the pacing which i think is a key to strong writing casing uh, pacing is it's it's knowing when enough is enough and needing to take those breaths and bring it back home and then it's knowing when to throw the next thing at your at your at your protagonist and how are they going to deal with this now when you're pantsing, that that sense of pacing almost has to be innate. You always need to get that feeling of, let's just slow down, you know, and, and I know I can cut some of that out, but something's got to happen soon. So as an example of that, when I was writing, and this is not giving too much away because it happens in about the third chapter, when Rose arrives and Finn takes her in and we know that she's injured, I'm writing that and I'm thinking, yeah, you no, know, she's got this infected you know, cut on the back of her hand and she's obviously been through these terrible experiences but this, it's not enough. There's got to be something. What else can I throw at her? And it's one of the, it's one of my mantras as well is go to the dangerous place, take the dangerous road and so what was the worst possible thing? What's the worst thing I can do to this character right now? And I could not think of anything worse than this 19-year-old girl in this dystopian world being pregnant. And I wrote that in without any idea of how I was going to resolve that or what was going to happen. But that's what I mean by writing into the dangerous space. And it forces you to to think about the narrative and how you're going to find solutions to those things. And uh, so throw the worst possible, you know, one of the things that I, I, I do in writing classes is, especially with young kids, is to say, If your character doesn't have a problem, you don't have a story. It's about the problems. That's how you're generating the dramatic tension is through throwing these problems at your characters. And when you think they can't take any more, throw something else at them. And then when you you know throw something else at them. And, of course, what we're doing as well in doing that is we are having the reader understand the resilience that this young person has to be able to deal with you know one one thing after another after another after another and how do they we how do they find their way through that so yes pacing is critical and making sure that you're throwing just a heap of problems at your characters
0: yeah and of course rose being pregnant also solves that other problem where you don't have to describe the scene where no. rose got pregnant that's
1: right this yeah.
0: horrible vicious gang that's roaming around plus the fact that she was held captive by them the reader's smart enough to put two and two together and that's almost scarier than reading that scene that you
1: didn't have to write yeah yes so that's the stuff that's inferred yes the other thing that that allows too is that i have no control over who's going to read the book and i know that there are kids in primary school who you know grade six year year seven and it's not really directed at them but they will they will come to the story and understand it on the level that they're capable of understanding it. And
0: that part of it will go over their head. Yeah, and that
1: part yeah. of it will go over their heads. Now, they might come back to that at some other, you know, some later date and think, yeah. oh, I see what, what was happening there. But yeah. by making it at that little bit oblique, I think you allow that, that readership to be wider than it otherwise would be. And plus, of course, you with, with young adult in particular, and no one likes the term, but you do need to get past the gatekeepers. You do need to get past the the teachers, the librarians, the parents, especially to get a book on curriculum which goes to the edge but doesn't go over the edge.
0: Yeah. Isn't it funny because with Olivia Newton-John just passing away, there's a whole lot of people our vintage you know in their sort of late 40s early 50s who were saying god i was 10 when that movie came out and i mm-hmm. loved it and now we look back at it and you know oh my god the the lyrics the misogyny yeah. the yeah. fact that she changes for a man and all this sort yeah. of stuff with our grown-up lenses on it but yeah, at the time yeah. all we all we saw was you know some fun lyrics and a kind yeah. of a, A meat cute story. Yeah, yeah. Yeah,
1: That that sort of revisionism is interesting, isn't it? It
0: is. (laughs) Yeah. So I can imagine kids going back to reading *The Road to Winter* and going, "Ah, okay, now it's all coming together for me." Talking about that, we we were going to talk about the first person present tense, and now I'm curious about your new book. Are you writing that in first person present tense? I know.
1: So. My fourth book, if not us i I wrote that in close third person and uh same again for the new one it's written okay. in close first third person and I think it's it's not that dissimilar to first person present tense because it's not an omniscient narrator who can see all yep. it's like looking over the shoulder of this character, so it keeps it it does keep it immediate and uh and it keeps the reader close to the character as well
0: yeah because i was going to say is that one of the other challenges of writing in first point of view you said it throws up some challenges in that well as you say finn can't know what happened in the Wilders' Mm. camp so therefore rose or cass has to fill in those gaps and that opens it up to exposition but then that also opens up the opportunity to create a dialogue but then i've got to add some action while that's happening so it's not an info dump like all of those kinds of things yeah Yeah.
1: so um i i think any whether you choose to write in you know first person third person each one has their challenges mm -hmm. and uh i've you know i've experimented with with both not with omniscient, but but certainly with close third person. I think they they both have their advantages and disadvantages. It is interesting that that so much YA is written in first person present tense, uh, which is a which is about you know getting those readers into the action and holding them in the story. Yeah, uh, with everything being so immediate.
0: Yeah, interesting. Do you think you'll keep writing in close third now, or uh, do you think at some point you'll go back to? first Yeah, I don't person? know.
1: I don't know. I yeah. think. I do think that some stories that some stories regardless of whether what genre they're in are better written in third person some are better written in first person and i know a number of writers who've rewritten whole books and they've changed from you know one one to the other and, and then back again because it didn't work
0: mark the various landscapes in the road to winter are drawn so vividly we've got the ocean and the empty beach which is finn's safe place the forest and the farmlands and the regional towns, I could see it all. And as Finn moves through those various landscapes, they represent both safety and danger. In fact, they're almost like characters in the novel. Tell us about the role setting plays in the novel and how you went about capturing the various landscapes so beautifully on the page.
1: The couple of things that I would say about setting is that is that, you know, setting again is about immediacy. I, I like to think of setting as the one meter around my character. You know, that's because that's what's important. So uh, if, for instance, I'm going to write a scene on the beach, set on the beach, I'm not going to bother with, you know, the clouds on the horizon and the waves. And what I am going to do to bring bring the reader into the scene is I'm going to talk about the sand between the toes of my character where they're wiggling their feet because that's all they need feelings. to understand where we are. So it's it's little things like that about setting which are really important. And the other thing about setting is that, and we mentioned this when we we're talking about character, is that is that I I like to think of setting as a character in itself. And we learn so much about our human characters by the way they interact with the setting. So we learn so much about Finn by the way he he is in the ocean, by the way he is in the bush, the way he moves through it, the way he feels comfortable there. All of those things. And that builds the character through his interaction with what's around
0: him. Yeah, you're right. When I think of Finn, I think of him in those settings, the forest checking his traps and on the beach. And he does move through those settings and you're feeling it with him. So Mark, you wrote The Road to Winter seven years ago and you've written three subsequent books and now you've got another one. What's changed about your process from book one to book five, apart from changing point of view and tense? What still works and what have you sort of left along the way? Uh,
1: I, I often think about writing a book as running a marathon. And I, I'm a person who, you know, I've never run a marathon, but, but I think if I would run a marathon once, I would think, oh, I could run another marathon. Oh, I could run another marathon. And it is, it's just building that confidence. So you've written your first book and that for me, that gave me the confidence to think, yes, I can do it again. I've done it once, I can do it again. And because I've done it once and I'm gaining experience as I go along, I have a better understanding of the discipline that it takes to get the job done and the necessity necessity for a writing routine, uh, which for me is up in in the morning at like 6.30, write for three hours, get 1,000, 1,500 words down and then walk away. That's oh. it. I'm, I'm done for the day. I've done my words for the day and I will, you know, go and do all the things that I want to do or go for a surfer or walk the dog or go to the beach or whatever. And so the, the routine is is important. And uh, I also now, know now that it's – I approach it more like a job, like I only write on, on weekdays. Okay. I don't work on weekends. I take six weeks off over summer and – uh, you know, I don't subscribe to that idea that if you want to be a writer, you have to write every day. I think that if you've got some talent as a writer, it's not going to desert you if you take six weeks off over summer. <laughs> it might take you a little longer to get back into it when you get there. But, you know, if if Roger Federer doesn't play tennis for six weeks, he doesn't forget how to play. He can still play. He just might be a little bit rusty and it won't take him too long to get back to, to top form. And... The other things that I've learned along the way are to allow myself thinking time as well. And that's formulating ideas. And that's important to the process. So, so, you know, I might take those six weeks off over summer, but I won't be not thinking about writing or about the story that I'm in the middle of or, uh, or what I might write next. And that's where the little notebooks and things obviously come in handy or jotting stuff down on your phone. I also think that that as you gain more experience, you, you're willing to take more risks um, and be more experimental. So hence with my new book, like it's a risky book because it has a female protagonist. Uh, it has not just a female protagonist, but a gay female protagonist. It has that structural thing where different dropping different points of view in along the way. So I'm prepared to back myself a little more. I would never have been able to do that with my first or, or even second book. No way. I'd have just been, oh no, you know. <laughs> so I guess it's saying what I mentioned earlier. It's being willing to write more dangerously and to not listen to the doubts as much, which we all have. I'm I'm very I'm a very big advocate of what I call writing away from the desk, and that is so, I might write for three hours in the morning and then go and do the things that I do during the day. But during that time, I'll be thinking about what I've written that morning and what I, where, what, where I might go next or what I might need to go back and just change in that. And so- um, Which is also
0: that- work, because- right? That's part of the work, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely it is. I think you get a better understanding of where you are in the process, you know, and not panicking that, oh, God, I've only got 30,000 words and I don't know where I am and what's going to happen. I think you become a little more confident that, look, I've done this before and I remember feeling this way before. I remember getting to a stage in my previous book and so, and I also think you end up with a better understanding of when the book is ready, when the book is done and you learn not to rush, even though, One of the problems is of course that once you have contracts you have deadlines and if you don't meet those deadlines so it is a matter of of using that time effectively to meet your deadline but also not rushing it and you know any publisher worth their salt will will tell you i would rather have a fully formed really good manuscript that you haven't rushed than one that you just belted out and handed in to get to our deadline and I've always met my deadlines, but I'm sure I'd be re- able to negotiate two, three months, whatever with my publisher, if they saw that there was going to be a better book at the end of it. And I think, I think that would be most publishers as well. It's certainly the experience that I've heard from, from most of the writer friends that I know.
0: So with this adult book, how long has it taken you to do the first draft? Like what have you given yourself?
1: Uh, this'll be about a two year process, mm. I would think. And it's a story that I've had in my head for a long time, so I knew where I was going to begin it, and I knew where it was going to end. I didn't know what was going to happen in the middle, but I had a pretty good idea. So it was, yeah, about a, about a two-year process, I would think. And now I am; it's due in at the end of next month okay. for for text to have a look at. And it's I could; it's probably ready now, but I'm very happy to have a, another month. To go back through it again and maybe i'll do it again and but that deadline actually i, I love a deadline a, a okay. deadline makes you you know more disciplined than you other, otherwise would be
0: and it sounds like you've you've pretty organized i mean you've already sent it out to your first readers have mm-hmm. they've come back you've put yeah. their feedback yeah. into place there's nothing it's like
1: that you know going to going to office works and ah. you know printing it off for the first time and this is what this is what you give to that you know to your first readers and it comes back with with you know writing all over it and, and but even just to have it in your hand for the first time and to realize the volume of the work that you've created that's a that's a lovely feeling
0: yeah do you ask them to use a friendly colored pen not just red something
1: friendly. <laughs> they don't use red they use black principally. oh black uh, and look i always i'm much more interested in sitting down and talking to them after they've read it rather than You know taking notes on the page i don't i don't actually encourage them to do that because it's generally their overall impressions that i'm after because an editor will pick up all the little you know the little mistakes and things and the inconsistencies but i want to know whether it gels as a story with them or not
0: yeah and where you know where they were bored or where it kind of fell flat or just as big sort of structural Yeah. yeah
1: and you know that was the reason for changing the start of the story because all three of them came back and said This doesn't, this didn't engage me until about page 50, you know? So I had to look at, okay, how do I change that? Hence the changing of those early chapters.
0: Yeah. And hey, a prologue worked for Jane Harper.
1: Mm.
0: Now, you're also a very accomplished and experienced short form writer, your short stories. You've got a short story collection coming out with a few other writers, haven't you?
1: Yeah, it's great. It is a, it's a, a short story collection where myself, Jock Sarong and uh, a writer named Neil White, who's an Australian writer who lives in the states, we came up with this idea of getting a group of Australian writers together and asking them to choose a Paul Kelly song and then to to write a story, use that as a springboard for writing a story so Everybody has a, you know, people my age in particular, everyone's got a Paul Kelly moment or they associate it with a particular time in their life or somewhere where they were travelling, a road trip that they did, a concert that they went to when their first child was born, all of those sorts of things. So we deliberately chose someone iconic like that and we got this fabulous list of writers together. We put it together without knowing whether we were going to be able to publish it. We weren't weren't going to self-publish it. We wanted to get a publisher. A couple of the big publishers looked at it, and then Fremantle Press had it for 24 hours and said, Yes, we want this. And it just, and it was like, Oh my God, it's actually going to work. You know, <laughs> you know? And the stories are just, Oh my God, there's so many magnificent stories in it. And some I can't wait. Like the very best short story writers Miranda Rowe, Laura Alvary, Bram Presser, uh, Robbie Arm, Michelle Wright. It's like a who's who. So, and their stories are just stunning so that's coming out in november
0: sounds great i can't wait to read that Mm. i used to live in richmond so those the clock on the silos is a very big part of my early adulthood as i used to drive to work short stories are a whole other ball game aren't they is that where you learn to fine-tune your craft your writing craft
1: yeah i was very aware that I've, i've I haven't had the benefit of studying, you know, reading or editing, not doing a course of any sort. I've done classes at places like Writers Victoria where I've had great mentors and teachers. And I mentioned Tony Jordan, Lee Kaufman, Amanda Laurie took a particular interest in my writing through a connection that we had. But other than that, it's been trial and error. And when I first started writing short stories, Uh, as, you know, without any idea of what I was doing. I was sending them out everywhere, to journals, newspapers, magazines. And, of course, I just got rejection after rejection after rejection after rejection, but because I hadn't built my skills. I hadn't hadn't perfected my craft. And, you know, finally when I got, (laughs) I got a short story published in this online journal called Headspring, which no one has ever heard of because it only ever lasted one edition, (laughs) but... But that one edition had my story in it. So God bless them wherever they are out there in the ether. But when I did finally get one story published after 12 months, 18 months of trying, it was just like a, it was a, like a light bulb moment because the only thing that differentiated that story from the others was that I put the most amount of time into this one and it was the best possible story I could write. So it was about, I don't know, three, four months' work put into a, a five-page story, you know. So I had, to, I had to learn that stuff. I had to learn my craft. And every, like, you, I'm sure you've interviewed a lot of writers. I'm sure every writer comes to it in a different way. But for me, it was the short story route. And that was my way of learning the craft that would, that would mean that I could have the skills to write long form. So I'm, I'm absolutely certain that I couldn't have written the road, the, you know, the Winter trilogy, unless I'd written those thirty odd short stories first, and also gained some confidence in my writing through some competition successes and getting my story published. Because it's not—that's part of the the psychology of writing as well—is that, well, these people have identified my work as being okay, good enough to be published. So maybe it is. And, and then that gives you the confidence to try something new and different and hence the movement to long form from short form. Mm,
0: and now you're going to even longer form. Is this going
1: yeah. to be 90,000, this new form, uh, a bit longer? Yeah, no, this one. This one's, oh, God, I'm not even sure where it is. It's about 80-something. Mm. So, uh, and maybe that'll get trimmed back, I don't know, once, once an editor gets hold of it. So, uh, it is... Uh, one, i mean it's such a difficult thing to write a really good short story it's it's a it's, a, it's a, there's an art form in there and i actually found it quite liberating to move to long form because i had so much more space and time to actually generate my characters and build the setting and do the world building and and then i realized i'd fallen into the trap of of overwriting and so that's when the stripping back process happens but Pretty much the same for when I, if, you know, most competitions uh, have a word limit. So if it's a 3,000 word limit, I would write a 4,000 word story and then I would trim back and trim back and trim back. And it might end up at 2,500 words from 4,000, but they'd be the best 2,500 words that I had written.
0: Mark, it has been such a delight to talk to you. There's been so much gold in there. I've taken notes and I'm sure all the listeners would be taking loads of notes as well and don't just read the first chapter people grab yourself a copy of the road to winter because i do feel like this novel is a complete masterclass in creating characters uh, how to deal with backstory how to deal with setting dialogue it's just got everything and i think on your website you've got all those buy links so i Mm. loved the way that you did that mark actually mark has got links to buy his book in all his favorite local bookstores, which is so lovely to support your local bookstores. But of course, if you're in a remote area, I think it's like about 18 bucks on Booktopia. Thank you, Mark, for your time, your wisdom, your expertise. And I cannot wait to read Minds Went Walking and also good luck with the new novel.
1: Thanks so much for having me, I've absolutely loved it.
0: There you go. That was the very talented Mark Smith another lovely extended writerly chat for you. I think we probably just need to accept that this is a long form version podcast, suitable for long walks or road trips. I can't seem to do these interviews in under an hour. And actually, to tell you the truth, I don't want to. I love talking to these authors and as long as they're happy to keep talking to me, I will listen to them talk about writing all day long. You can find Mark at MarkSmithWriter.com or on Instagram or Twitter. I've put his website and socials and a link to buy a copy of The Road to Winter, in fact, all of Mark's books, in the show notes. So, on to our October guest. I'm super excited to have the one and only Caroline Overington coming on the podcast. Many of you will know Caroline as the literary editor at The Australian, but Caroline is also a Walkley award-winning journalist and has written a whopping 14 books, both fiction and non-fiction, including the novel we are going to be talking about, The Cuckoo's Cry. I'm so excited to talk to Caroline, not just because she's such an accomplished writer, but she's so passionate about writing and books and she's incredibly supportive of the writing community. So I know she's going to have a lot of great stuff to share with us. Let me tell you about The Cuckoo's Cry. On the eve of the global lockdown, that's right, it's set during the pandemic, that's something I'm going to talk to her about, Don Barlow opens the door of his old beachside cottage to find a pretty girl with pink-tipped hair claiming to be his granddaughter. She needs help and has nowhere else to go. He welcomes her in and so begins a mystery set in unprecedented times. With the virus raging outside their home, the girl cannot be asked to leave, but what does he risk by having her stay? As Don and the girl start to forge a bond, Don's adult daughter has her own suspicions about what the newcomer is after. But unable to travel, how can she protect Don and discover if the girl is really who she claims to be? Hannah Ritchel said of this novel, Caroline Overington has an ability to home in on the darker, unsettling sides of life, seizing upon topics you might see headlining the news and spinning them into gripping page turners. Couldn't agree more, Hannah. And that's so true about all of Caroline's novels. They suck you in and keep you there, just turning the pages madly until you're done. So I have so much to ask her. I know a lot of writers are grappling with whether or not to include the pandemic in their writing and how they do that. So it will be fascinating to pick Caroline's brain on that topic. So you know what to do by now go away and read the book with your writing goggles on. And if you find yourself wanting to ask Caroline about how she did something or why, like for example, why she chose to set the novel during the pandemic or what inspired her characters or how she managed the pacing or, and I know she's a really fast writer, so we can ask her about that as well. You can send those questions in to me via email or on Instagram or Facebook. You'll find links to everything on writersbookclubpodcast.com. I'm one of those people who is very easy to contact. I'm in all the places. And of course, as always, there is a chance to win a copy of The Cuckoo's Cry. To enter, all you need to do is look for the giveaway post on Instagram or Facebook and just follow the directions. Entries will close on October the 12th. But of course, if you're listening to this podcast in the future, there's a new giveaway every month. So follow me on Instagram or Facebook, and then you'll just always be up to date. You'll find all the show notes for this episode right here in your podcast app or on the website at writersbookclubpodcast.com the other thing you can do if you are on apple podcasts and while you're in the app is to leave a rating or a review or both you can just scroll down to where the ratings and reviews are and uh, tap the stars and write a little review so if you've got the time and you like the podcast i would love it if you did and thank you to those who've already left a review it's so delightful to read them I recorded today's episode on the beautiful unceded lands of the Garrigal people of the Eora Nation. Thanks for listening and I'll catch you next month.
1: Until then, happy writing.